Last week, Dean Powery called us to listen to the wisdom that cries out in the streets. He asked us if we were focused on making a living or making a life. And he challenged us to heed wisdom's call that comes from soup kitchens and deathbed visits and the cross. Today's scripture lesson from the book of James draws us again to the conversation about wisdom. James asks his community of early Christ followers, who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. Don't just say you're wise, show you're wise. But the challenge that James is seeing in his community is not that they are not wise, but they are wise with the wrong kind of wisdom. James sees a clear division between two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom rooted and grounded in God and God's kingdom, and the wisdom rooted and grounded in the kingdom of this world. For James, these two worlds are diametrically opposed. The wisdom of this world flows from the logic of selfish ambition and bitter envy. And the wisdom of God flows from the logic of humility. James believes that all kinds of evil flow out of the wisdom rooted in envy and selfish ambition. But the wisdom of humility that comes from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. For James, it's an option between two ways, two wisdoms, the way of the world and the way of God in Christ, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. James's early church community was struggling to live in the way of God as they were under serious political and social pressures. In fact, they so fully embraced the world's wisdom that James said they had become friends with the world and enemies of God. So he called them back to faithfulness in God and God's ways through the path of humility. James quotes the wisdom saying of Proverbs 3.34, saying, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. According to James, the corrective to the selfish ambition and envy that led to all manner of evil is humility. I'm sure that all you who've come to church here or who are listening online are so holy and Christ-like that you never struggle with anything like envy or selfish ambition or pride. But let's just consider them for a moment, just in case you have a friend who really needs to hear it and you're going to tell them about it later. If first century Christians struggled with envy and selfish ambition, the temptation for 21st century Christians has only grown. I don't know if there's ever been a better playground for envy and selfish ambition than social media. Finely curated images and stories of the life people choose to let us see begs us to compare our lives 
and reality with theirs. But you see, comparing ourselves with others is the root of two destructive forces, that of envy and selfish ambition and their close companion, pride. Envy is connected to the discontentment that comes from seeing the gifts, abilities, and opportunities or possessions of others and measuring them against your own comparative lack of those very things. Envy can lead to jealousy or to self-loathing. Selfish ambition, on the other hand, is all about the kind of striving that's self-serving. The world James uses, the word James uses for selfish ambition is connected to using unfair means to attain political office for personal gain. So think, politicking in all of its worst ways and for all of its worst reasons, and that's what you've got. You know, we so often gain our sense of worth and value on how we compare to others. Too often we understand our value based on what possessions we have or don't, on what school accepted us or didn't, on what degree we earned or failed to, on what job we were offered or weren't, on what team we made or didn't, on what social group we're a part of or aren't. And you know, too often we see the value of others based on these very same things as well. The destructive comparisons we make are cancers that eat away at ourselves and at the community around us. The ways we compare ourselves with others are at times subtle, but are nevertheless devastating to ourselves and to the whole. Think about the popular practices of the humble brag or name dropping, or one of my favorites, the low key flex. If you don't know what these are, look them up on Urban Dictionary, they're pretty funny. And think about how these things have become breeding grounds for envy and pride within ourselves and others. If James is right that envy and selfish ambition are the root of all manner of evil, then practices like these do not help us to follow Jesus or be the community that Christ calls us to be. It's the wisdom of the world that says we are better off bragging or self-promoting or boosting our own personal brand so that we stand out above our peers. The wisdom of this world says that you are defined by and your worth is rooted in your degrees your socioeconomic status, your able-bodiedness, your immigration paperwork, or your housing situation. But this is not the wisdom that cries out from the street or cries out from the cross of Christ. This is not godly wisdom. The wisdom that is rooted in Jesus is the wisdom of humility. But what is humility? And how do we even begin to live by its wisdom? Unlike the horizontal comparisons 
that come with envy, selfish ambition, and pride, humility's comparison is a vertical comparison, a comparison of oneself in relation to God. The wisdom humility offers is that our lives are to be measured not in relation to others, but in relation to God. There's no room for horizontal comparison or comparison with others within God's kingdom. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, using a different metaphor, there's no room for ranking the parts of the body. Each are of immeasurable worth. Humility is the grace-filled byproduct of seeing how great God is and how insignificant we are by comparison, and yet still being fully secure in our belovedness. Humility comes when we know our true selves as God's beloved children, and when we begin to see our peers and our neighbors and our enemies in just the same way. Humility assumes that God is always enough. So there is no need for fighting for attention or affection or acceptance. Humility places its confidence and its certainty not in one's own abilities or possessions or in any other thing but God. Father Greg Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the whole world, shares a story in his book, Barking to the Choir, about a man he calls Joshua. Joshua was meeting with his parole officer who decided that that day was going to be a great day to humiliate him right in front of three other officers. The PO was so degrading and belittling of Joshua that no one would have blamed him for retaliating in some form or another. But Joshua just took it. When Father Greg asked him later how he took such treatment without a hateful reaction, Joshua responded, if you're humble, you'll never stumble. Reflecting on this, Father Greg writes, if seen right, humility brings us to our true home. It grounds us in putting first things recognizably first. It anchors us in who we truly are. Here's some of the good news about living humbly. The humble place is the realm of God's abundant grace. Because when you've compared yourself to God rather than others, you'll recognize that it's impossible to achieve enough or accumulate enough or even be enough in relation to God. Yet you'll recognize that you are all that God wants. Consequently, and paradoxically, because of God's love and desire for you, you are more than enough. Jesus, or James says it this way, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. 
Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last because it's not about measuring up or winning or succeeding in comparison with others. In Jesus, we learn that God will go to any length to get what God wants. That is a relationship with you and me and with all people regardless of status forever. If you're humble, you'll never stumble from the certainty of God's love for you. There are some deceptive and false forms of humility, so it's worth saying what humility is not. Humility is not the same as denying or dismissing your skills, talents, gifts, and graces. It's not the same as falsely deflecting compliments related to a job well done. Joan Chittister puts it so well in her book, Wisdom Distilled from the Daily, when she writes, Humility is not a false rejection of God's gifts. To exaggerate the gifts we have by denying them may be as close to narcissism as we get in this life. Or as Father Greg says, humility is not a beating up of oneself until one's esteem is leveled beyond recognition. As Chittister continues, no, humility is the acknowledgement of God's gifts to me and the acknowledgement that I have been given them for others. Humility is the total continuing surrender of God's power in my life and in the lives of those around me. When pride, envy, and selfish ambition separate us from others, humility connects us more deeply to our common humanity. The self-protection that is characteristic of the wisdom of the world is released when in the wisdom of humility, we turn with open hearts toward others. For this reason, active and careful listening to others may be the quintessential act of humility. True listening is always other-oriented and other-embracing. It's no wonder that James calls his Christian community to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Humility insists that there is no truth about others or about ourselves that is truer than God's love for us. One of the great gifts of this is it allows us to tell the whole truth about ourselves. Just as in humility, we are able to honestly acknowledge the gifts that God has given so too are we able to honestly acknowledge our shortcomings and failures and wrongdoings. And this honesty, related both to the good and the harm that we do, allows for a truer and a deeper connection with others. One day, my brother-in-law, Will, was driving home from work wrapped up in thinking about the events of the day. He was driving on the interstate near their house, and he was in maybe a slightly distracted state of mind. And in that state of mind, he decided to change lanes. He was alone in his world of thoughts until the blaring of the horn behind him reminded him that, in fact, he was not alone on the road. 
He had inadvertently cut off the person behind him, and the man was furious. It was a classic road rage scenario in full effect. Tailgating and honking and flagrant gestures were everywhere. Will changed lanes to let the man go around him, but the car followed suit. So after some time, my brother-in-law decided to pull over, perhaps hoping that the man would just drive on by, but no such luck. The driver pulled over behind him, and once stopped, both of the men got out of the car. Now, let me tell you, Will is no small man, and the full sleeve tattoos that he has on both of his arms speak to a potential aggressiveness that actually is not characteristic of him. By the looks of the scene, this was destined for the evening news. The enraged driver came up to Will using the most colorful vocabulary you can imagine to tell him how horrible of a person he was for cutting him off and not paying attention while he was driving. But in a moment of stunning and disarming humility, Will responded, you're right, man. That was totally my fault. I was caught up in my own thoughts, and it was my mistake. The furious man was speechless. Then after a few breaths, the man said, I'm sorry. It's been a really hard day for me. And then, in what can only be described as a holy moment, these two men, unlikely companions on the road of humility, now bound together by their recognition of their common humanity, embraced one another on the side of the road. You see, the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom of humility, produces good fruit. When others feel seen and heard, when others are freed from the traps of comparison and the games we play of positioning ourselves above others, they too can live in the reality of their belovedness. Jesus' disciples wasted their energy arguing about who would be the greatest among them. So Jesus invited a socially insignificant and a generally powerless child in their midst. Welcoming this one, he said, is the same as welcoming me and welcoming the one who sent me. And in that moment, the last became first and the first became last because they knew they were God's beloved. James's and Jesus's invitation and calling that echoes through scriptures show, invite us and call us to show your wisdom with your life. So what if we practice the wisdom of humility this week? What if, for just one week, or even one day, we cut the comparisons that drive us to self-loathing or envy or selfish ambition or pride? What if, for one week, 
or even just one day. We listened instead of speaking. What if for one week, or even just one day, we found a way to put the socially insignificant and powerless at the center of our circles of welcome and authority? What if for one week, or even just one day, we practiced staying close to the ground by positioning ourselves with the lowly and the left out of the world. What if? I know what would happen. It's called grace. May grace happen to you this week. Amen.